G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Broadcast from the studios of 3CR. My name is Susanna Duffy. The 11th of November is a momentous day in history, mainly remembered because of the silencing of the guns in the First World War. In this episode, we'll run through the shocking events of 1975 and look at the rebel outlaw Ned Kelly. Many years ago, in my seventh year, I climbed onto the roof to rescue what I thought was a frightened cat, frightened and in danger. Of course, I would have been much more in danger than the cat, who was perfectly okay. But I was very young and knew no better. I remember this occasion so well because my grandfather climbed after me and carried me down on his back. It was what he said to my parents that stuck in my brain. He said, she's as game as Ned Kelly. Over the years when trials and troubles had been thrown at me, I whispered to myself, come on, you can do it. You're as game as Ned Kelly. If only, if only, I'd love to be as game as Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly was known as an outlaw bushranger, but really, he was no ordinary crim. He was despised by the establishment, but he was revered by large numbers of the population because of his affinity with the poor and his stand against police harassment. Ned was born in 1854 to a family of Irish descent in the British colony of Victoria. Now this was the gold rush era and a period of rapid expansion. While a few people managed to strike it rich, taxes and intense competition meant that many struggled to make ends meet. The tensions that developed led to an outbreak of struggles Most famously, the Eureka Rebellion in Ballarat. While the Eureka Revolt was defeated, that struggle led to reforms such as new land laws and voting rights. The land laws, known as Selection Acts, made it easy to distribute small plots of land to selectors, Selectors were essentially small farmers. Many were poor and from Irish backgrounds. These plots were to be used for small-scale agricultural productions. Now, at that time, the vast bulk of land was occupied by squatters, mainly wealthy English people who took up large tracts of land after colonisation and then gain usage rights. Mostly, they used the land for large-scale livestock grazing. There was never any mention, much less any thought, of the First Nations people, about the people whose land was stolen to make way for these wealthy squatters. The squatters saw these new selectors as encroaching on their space, and as a result... Many conflicts arose. Selectors weren't allowed to graze livestock 
and most often their land wasn't fertile enough to grow healthy crops. And this meant that many were poverty-stricken, and some resorted to stealing livestock from the squatters as a way to get by. The police cracked down on livestock theft in a very heavy-handed manner. Poor selector families suffered from police harassment, and many were jailed for what were essentially petty economic crimes. As a result, a widespread hatred of the police developed alongside the class tensions between the poor selectors and the wealthy squatters. The Kelly family were no strangers to police harassment and state repression. Ned's father, Red Kelly, was an Irish convict transported to Van Diemen's Land in 1841 for stealing a pig. He moved to Victoria after his release and in 1865 he was convicted of unlawfully possessing a bull hide. He was sentenced to six months hard labour and died shortly after. At this stage, Ned was just 12 years old. After his father's death, Ned himself began to run foul of the law. He began associating with bushrangers and was sentenced to three years prison at the age of 15 for crimes associated with stealing horses. After his time in prison, Ned worked various odd jobs, including as a timber worker, but in the 1870s, the area where the Kelly family lived in northeast Victoria hit hard times. Gold mining started to dry up and drought struck the region. This intensified the conflicts between the selectors and the squatters and the police harassment increased. On one occasion in 1878, a drunk policeman had come to the Kelly home and was harassing the family. A fight broke out and after being forced to leave, the officer fabricated a story that Ned had shot him. Despite the police officer's lack of evidence, Kelly had no faith in the biased court system, so decided to go into hiding. He lived with his brother Dan and his friends Joe Byrne and Steve Hart. The foursome became known as the Kelly Gang. Kelly was wanted for attempted murder over this episode, but unable to find him, the police arrested and jailed his mother for aiding and abetting. From then on, Ned vowed to take revenge for this grave injustice against his family. A huge manhunt was organised. In the course of the pursuit, a shootout took place at Stringy Bark Creek. Three police officers were killed in that gunfight and the state responded by placing a bounty on the heads of the gang members. Despite this, the gang stayed on the run for two years. The small farmers who populated rural Victoria at that time were hugely sympathetic to the Kelly gang. For them, the gang was an expression of their struggle against the wealthy landowners 
and against the police who effectively acted as the squatters' private security guards. Poor farmers provided a support network for the gang. At the same time, the gang robbed several banks and distributed cash to poor farmers who were in need. They often burned mortgage deeds, registering the debts of small farmers. Frustrated that the gang was developing a social base, the state introduced more new laws and rounded up anyone suspected of supporting the gang. 21 suspected supporters were locked up without charge at Beechworth Jail. In 1879, Kelly drafted a long manifesto known as the Jewelry Letter. This colourful letter objects to the harassment of his family and rails against the police and the wealthy landowners. The letter denounced the role of the British Empire in Ireland and also proposed distributing wealth away from the rich landowners for the benefit of poor selector families. The Cali Gang was eventually found in 1880 in Glenrowan. Expecting a huge police mobilisation, they conceived a plan to rip up the train tracks, hoping to derail a train from Melbourne carrying police reinforcements. This attempt failed due to a tip-off. Someone gave them up. Subsequently, a gunfight broke out at the local pub. Reports state that the police officer in charge called upon Kelly to surrender in the name of the Queen. Kelly was heard to yell back, Surrender be buggered! In an act of defiance, the gang came out of the pub wearing their metal armour and helmets. A nine-hour gun battle ensued. The police eventually burnt down the pub, killing Joe Byrne, Steve Hart and Dan Kelly. Ned was finally captured after another shootout the next day. Upon capture, Ned Kelly was put on trial and found guilty of murder. At this stage, he was 25 years old. He was sentenced to death by hanging and was executed at the Melbourne jail on the 11th of November, 1880. He was hanged despite widespread public opposition, which included a mass petition, protests and an 8,000-strong public meeting in Melbourne. The outpouring of anger at Kelly's treatment was a reflection of the tough conditions faced by both poor selectors in the rural areas and the growing working class in places like Melbourne and Geelong. Kelly was seen as someone who stood on the side of the poor and a champion of justice. In this era, workers in the cities were forming trade unions and winning shorter working hours. People were groping towards the idea of a better life. The establishment clearly feared that there was potential for workers to gather around some of the rebellious ideals that Kelly was known for. So the state moved swiftly to squash Kelly and to make an example of him. By hanging him in the face of mass public opposition, they sent a message that any future acts of defiance would also be dealt with harshly. 
While Kelly didn't have a clear plan to affect social change, it must be remembered that he lived in a period when Australian capitalism was still in its early stages of development. Trade unions were new, and workers had not yet moved towards creating their own independent political parties. Like we've seen elsewhere, in these types of conditions, Sometimes resistance to oppression and exploitation can take on a more individualistic form. This phenomena is described as social banditry. In the Australian context, Ned Kelly, the bushranger, embodied a type of early social movement. Kelly's death marked the end of bushranging era in Australia, and in the decades to follow, trade unions developed further. Resistance to the established order took on a more powerful and predominantly collective form. Basic socialist ideas and the conception that the urbanised working class could be the main agent of social change became more widely accepted. Ned Kelly was a man who was drawn into struggle by the oppressive circumstances his family faced. But rather than accepting his lot, he chose to stand up and resist. While some of his ideas and methods were naive and confused, he saw himself as a fighter for the poor and oppressed. Despite his shortcomings, there's no doubt that Ned Kelly helped set a tone in Australian working culture. Many of the fighters for the poor and oppressed that came after him based themselves on his militancy and spirit of defiance. And we should take a lesson from Ned Kelly and follow in the footsteps of Australia's most famous rebel by continuing the fight for a society, a more just society, a society where the wealth created is used for the benefit of the many rather than of the few. 3CR Poor Ned. You're better off dead. At least you've got some peace of mind. Poor Ned, you're better off dead. At least you'll get some peace of mind. You're right on the track, they're right on your back. Boy, they're gonna hang you high. Oh.
break the bars It's a thousand lightning killing Who'll hoist the flag and stars Wasting all our neck You're better off dead Well, at you'll get some peace of mind You're out on the track They're right on your back Boy, they're gonna hang you high Boy, Ned, you're better off dead At least you'll get some peace of mind You're out on the track They're right on your back Boy, they're gonna hang you high Great words from Red Gum. And no man single-handed can hope to break the bars. It's a thousand like Ned Kelly, who'll hoist the flag of stars. 3CR We mustn't forget 1975, listener. And we mustn't forget what the Governor-General, that Kerr, did at that time. You know, there are some people around you listening to this program who weren't even born then. I just want to remind them of a couple of things about 1975 and the Queen and the Governor-General. Here's an archival recording. An extraordinary event took place at this very site, Old Parliament House. The Australian Prime Minister, Edward Gough Whitlam, was sacked by the Governor-General and replaced by an interim Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser. Well may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Of course, no scandal of this size is complete without its conspiracy theories. And one of the big ones is whether, of course, the American intelligence had any role to play in prompting Sir John Kerr to do what he did. There were concerns from the very outset of the Whitlam government. Whitlam himself didn't want his ministerial staff to be security vetted by ASIO. New Attorney General Lionel Murphy searching for information to corroborate his theory that there were Croatian terrorists intending on killing, assassinating the visiting Prime Minister of Yugoslavia raided the headquarters of ASIO in Melbourne with police in tow looking for information to prove his theory that ASIO had been complicit or negligent in its duties. If an Attorney-General could barge in like that without giving any forewarning to his own Director-General about his intentions, what next was going to happen? Subsequently, there was concern about Pine Gap. Pine Gap had been built in the late 1960s under very secret conditions. And at that stage, in the mid-1970s, it was not public knowledge what was going on there. And the Prime Minister was on the cusp of revealing details about this facility in the middle of Australia. A couple of days before the dismissal itself, the ASIO liaison officer in Washington is called in by his American counterparts for what is effectively a demarche. Ted Shackley speaks to the ASIO representative and says, you've got to do something. This is uh, deeply worrying. What did ASIO know? What did ASIO do? 3CR Yes, 
deeply worrying, deeply worrying. What did ASIO know? And what did ASIO do? Though I haven't forgotten 1975, and I haven't forgotten that cur, and I haven't forgotten, nor have I forgiven Malcolm Fraser for it. And if you want to ring up and tell me, oh, look, Malcolm Fraser did this and did that, he became a nice man, he, he helped some refugees somewhere... I don't care. I know what he did in 1975, and that's enough. That's quite enough for me. But let's have a look now at our current Governor-General, another old, retired, superannuated military man. What does the Governor-General do? What is a Governor-General for? The Governor-General is also the Commander-in-Chief of the Australian Defence Force. The duties of the Governor-General are of various kinds. Some are laid on him by the Constitution, some by the Letters Patent and his Commission. Others are placed on him by Acts of the Commonwealth Parliament. Others come to him by conventions established in past centuries in Great Britain or by practices and customs that have developed in Australia. All of these duties have a common characteristic. The Governor-General is not placed in a position where he can run the Parliament, run the courts, or run any of the instrumentalities of government. But he occupies a position where he can help ensure that those who conduct the affairs of the nation do so strictly in accordance with the Constitution and the laws of the Commonwealth and with due regard to the public interest. The Governor-General acts on advice, whether he's acting in his own name or as Governor-General in Council. He has the responsibility to weigh and evaluate the advice and has the opportunity of discussion with his advisers. He has a responsibility for seeing that the system works as required by the law and conventions of the Constitution, but he does not try to do the work of ministers. Also clearly noted on the Australian Government website about the Governor-General is this nice little paragraph. These duties are essential to Australia's modern democracy. However, perhaps the most important role of the Governor-General is their work in the Australian community. Each year the Governor-General hosts or attends hundreds of events around the country and meets tens of thousands of Australians. They do this to celebrate the best of Australia and recognise the everyday Australians who, without fuss or fanfare, contribute to the lives of others and make Australia such a compassionate, harmonious and peaceful place. So there you go. That's a very important duty for the Governor-General, <laughs> to make Australia such a compassionate, harmonious and peaceful place. Well, he failed on that one, didn't he? Miserably. 3CR Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I'll leave you with the ballad of 1975 from Roaring Jack. We speak of friends, lest we forget. 
And the lads are walking out, and we walked right up that job while the gaffer held the door and watched it on the telly in a TV rental store. It was one hell of a situation, the kind you just can't gauge. There was golf on the steps of Parliament House, staying down, maintaining the rage. In the year of the double dissolution, Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in the revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats push it out There was violence in the air As I walked back home at night Everyone yet mate was getting ready for the fight Saying if they're out for trouble, then trouble's what they'll get We started out a colony, do they think we're a colony yet? In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in the revolution But as the weeks went by, the anger turned to mild relief. Locks were freed like magic, and I watched in disbelief to see a scam so blatant, so jacked up and full of holes. And the people in the thousands endorsed it at the polls. And the year of that double dissolution, drinking in the streets gave way to doubt. Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats push it out Closer to the mark Who spoke about conspiracy Sinister and dark But history records it And the story will be read And we let them take democracy And stand it on its head In the year of the double dissolution Drinking in the streets gave way to doubt Australia voted in a revolution Back and let the fat cats push it out. Australia voted in the revolution. Let the fat cats push it out.